What does it mean to have faith, especially if you no longer feel at home in religious institutions? We now live in a society where 88 million of us identify as spiritual but not religious. We are trying to find a way to still have the courage to believe in the more than what we see, in the beyond, in the greater, in a version of divinity that is more inclusive than perhaps what we grew up with. But believing in the unknown requires that we become comfortable being uncomfortable <laughs> with the uncertainty of what we cannot know and cannot see. In every faith tradition, this was known as the act of faith. The capacity to put your belief into action in trust through a heartful devotion, a loving belief that at the end of it all, we're caught by a net that's greater than we can see. It's becoming increasingly difficult for me to describe my faith in certitudes. It has become a map of unknowing, which is why I'm making this show. And yet, when I am wavering, I need the strength and stability of the faithful, <laughs> of people who do believe and believe with their whole hearts. Because from them we can learn the courage, the courage that it takes to live with trust. A trust that believes that if your heart and mind and tongue are aligned, that if you're not lying, if your intention is pure and you are in integrity, then whatever it is that you do can be surrendered because it will be good. <laughs> it will reach the right people. It will connect the right dots. And that is a posture of faith that I'm trying to live into these days. When my knees get wobbly in the midst of the storms of unknowing, I reach out to those whose faith is stronger than mine. I reach out to friends, friends like Jawad. Jawad Mian is the founder of Stray Reflections, which is an independent global macro research firm with a focus on major investment themes. His clients include some of the world's largest hedge funds, family offices, and institutional investors. Jawad is devoted to the pursuit of truth in life and in markets. And in his book, Stray Reflections, he digs deep into his personal experiences and shares not just insights on the many themes in his life, but excerpts from great literature, the eternal wisdom of the poets, saints, and philosophers. I met Jawad under extraordinary circumstances, and he quickly became one of the truest, kindest friends in my life. The book, Stray Reflections, is one that, trust me, you want to have on your bedside table. It's the kind of book that you want to start or end your day with. It's chock full of the spiritual wisdom that animates your creative courage, no matter what it is that you do. So with that, let's dive into this conversation with my friend and author, Jawad Mian. Jawad, I usually like to begin these conversations on this podcast by talking about the first map that we were handed. And I find that all of us have been given some version of a map in some shape, way, or form, whether it's through spiritual formation or cultural background or even just particular quirks about our family of origin or who our parents were. But it has a way of sending us out in a specific trajectory. 
And most of the time, it takes many years for us to realize that we're carrying that first map around before we decide if we want to keep following that map or jump off. So what was the first map that you were handed? Tony Robbins asked this question, whose love did you crave growing up? And for me, it was my father. And it was him because he was very busy, an entrepreneur. And when he'd come back from school, he'd be at work. When he'd come back from work, we'd be asleep. Uh, when we'd go to school, he'd be asleep. So we just wouldn't see him until the Friday, which was the weekend for us. And uh, so we didn't have like a very friendly relationship with him. He was around and he was very supportive and had a very nice upbringing. But I certainly craved his love. And I, and I learned through that, that perhaps a lot of my striving in my 20s, you know, even during my university years of just trying to like get through university and start working was to perhaps speak to him in his language of like success and achievement and career. And being very ambitious was very much inspired um, by just looking at him. I used to love um, how hard he was working and the social stuff that he was doing for the community as well. And he was, was very inspirational for me. And I think the map originally was certainly to be very successful in material terms so that I can get that recognition from my dad mm. that, hey, Jawad, you did good, you know? <laughs> and uh, I haven't gotten that yet. <laughs> um, and I think some way um, through the, my life, th that map even tore apart and set me off in a very completely different journey. Well, I want to ask you about that because I think these moments of rupture have to be named to be seen and recognize so that hopefully in our lives when other ruptures occur, we remember that there was a whole new map that caught us underneath that falling through or that rupture or that break. So talk to us about this, this uh, redirection that happened in your life. And you, you write about it in your book, Stray Reflections. And I just chuckled so hard when you were like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then it's like, nope, I'm going to be, and I don't want to give it away, but I'll, I'll let you share a bit of that journey that you made um, throughout your life as you were figuring out your vocation. Yeah. So again, touching to our earlier theme, my dad wanted me to be a doctor because there was no doctor in our family. And I was the smart one amongst the brothers. And then <laughs> that idea flopped. So I'm like, okay, fine, let me be a lawyer. That was the discussion amongst the family group. Um, and my dad was like, okay, fine. Go, go pursue law. And I was like, fine, I'll be the next prime minister of Pakistan. That was the idea. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And then found <laughs> my way, uh, you know, veering into finance and, and then now writing. And, and that was, I think, part of that map in it originally, right? And I think the rupture you're talking about, for me, wasn't so clear. It was a very gradual process, but it certainly began mm. as I found, interestingly, um, these beginning with either death or birth. And in my case, it was the death of my grandfather. Mm. And um, he passed away. And he was a very uh, spiritual being. Like, I always remember him wearing white clothes with white beard, beaming, shining, glowing. Everybody loved him, very soft-spoken, very kind. And when he passed away um, in 2005, it was as though all the 
blessings that were in the family were like stripped away. And then I found also is very common, at least culturally, when the elder goes away, there's some sort of beautiful essence that's lacking, that's missing. And it's not that he was wealthy, he wasn't, he was an, he was an accountant in the, in the army, but there was a lot of infighting within the family after he, he passed away. And my dad was really hurt through that, you know. Um, and I was struggling with this question. My grandfather has 11 children. Why is not a single one like him? And it was such an obvious stark difference between my grandfather and each of his children who were all worldly in their um, aspirations, in their activities. Not a single one was a, a model of him. And so I then went on this like journey to like learn more about him. You know, for two, three years, I would travel to Pakistan, spend time with my grandmother, family members, interviewing them to understand more and more about him. And it took me a while to really crack the code as to what made him different, because they would always tell me these attributes that were very common uh, in elders and folks of you know the spiritual kind. And then eventually I stumbled upon you know very specifically what was about him that differentiated him and gave him that essence. And that's what set me on this other path, you know, um, the spiritual path per se. Not lessening in my ambition, um, not, you know, that was the fear that you'd lose your edge or you'd lose your ambition. Yeah. But it was certainly that. It was just shift from purely thinking about the world in material terms to thinking about it in spiritual terms and what is my primary mode of engaging with it. Wow. That's such a shift from how you perceive reality and our role in it. I mean, it's like you didn't just shift your map it's like you shifted worlds <laughs> and and a new map as well you know so many people address the title of this podcast when i share that i have a podcast called unknowing and as the gateway to possibility and, you know and i use this as a shorthand for both spiritual and creative growth happens this way of letting go of who we were or what we knew in order to make room for who we could be. And um, I get a lot of this answer. A lot of people are like, yeah, but but you don't unknow everything. Like there's something you need to know, right? Like you're not walking around in like a state of complete unknowing. Um, and I guess what you just said brings up the distinction for me because I guess the way that I'm approaching that on this show is the difference between maps and an inner compass or maybe between the mind or the heart or even how you just said it's the value of you know material success quote unquote or the value of becoming or being a certain quality of of, of a person and um i think the map or the mind can't really help but create maps because it's kind of the function of our minds but it it's the heart that i want to trust and listen to when it comes to the direction of my life and this kind of courageous creative adventure. So do you find that distinction? How do you see that difference between head and heart perception? And is that some of the shift that you felt you were dropping into a deeper place in how you saw the world and yourself? It's interesting how all ancient wisdom, um, spiritual traditions, they all talk about the heart. Mm. No one mentions the brain. And yet we're living in a culture which is ruled by science and intellectual conversations and you know, really uh, feeling the importance of the mind to conquer problems. 
And I think we've lost that edge. You know, Rabbi Heschel talked about faith being an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, Rumi says you must keep baking your heart until it opens, you know. Um, all wisdom is about the heart. And I think when you're in that um, mode of chasing after material things, you're, you're certainly listening to the heart, but you're also very much driven by what the mind is saying. And so the way I think about this is actually twofold. The first is that, you know, the most common wisdom you'd hear, Brie, is know thyself. Mm. But I think what's left out of that is like, which version? Yeah. Because there's a version of me with my friends. There's a version of me at work with my spouse, with my children. There's so many different versions of us out there. So how can I collapse them into one person? And the only way to do that, I found, is to always operate from a place where your heart, your mind, and your tongue are aligned. And the tongue is important as well, because what your tongue says, your heart admits and submits to. And so that battle between the heart and the mind, I found, you know, can be arbitrated and internalized through living in this centeredness. So if I'm talking to my wife, if I'm talking to my children, if I'm talking to anyone, if I'm centered, there's just one Jawad out there. Mm. And you're only sending this one energy out there. And you're being directed by it. And if you have any conflict from as big as, should I get into this business engagement to where should we have dinner tonight? You'll feel that disconnect between the heart and the mind and the tongue. And so for me, it's been a real priority to always live from that spot, that place. And... Um, a hack that I have to that is a simple rule, which is that I'm not going to lie anymore. It's not like I was a compulsive liar, <laughs> you know, but just, you know, having this one rule that I'm not going to lie anymore yeah. keeps you in check so that you don't say something that your heart doesn't believe. Yeah. And you're not, you know, falling out of balance. Um, so that's how I would sort of define how I operate now is this, this with the centeredness between the heart, the mind, and the tongue. But the other way I would also add to that is there's this saying in the Bible, Prophet Jesus talks about how seek first the kingdom of God and then everything shall be granted to you. So for me, the my life I feel was defined by these two halves. Mm. The first map was me seeking everything. I wanted to be a billionaire, I wanted to be on the cover of magazines, I wanted to have a foundation, I wanted to save the world. The second half was me realizing, hey, wait a minute, let's just think about this for a second. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so now it's all about, actually, that's my job. Mm. If I do that, everything else will take care of itself. Mm. And that's the path I'm on now. I want to ask you about this because I think so many people associate, you know, the path of spirituality as separate from the world as other, you know, as distinct from, oh, you're going to go be a monk, you're going to be in the cave, you're going to go meditate, you're going to go to all those retreats. But you're very dedicated to demonstrating the interplay between spirituality and the creative active life. Um, You've done so through your reflections, through the stray reflections. And I want to connect the dots for the listener to have you share how you stopped lying (laughs) to talk about how you were like aligning with that deeper truth in yourself. What was that moment that you realized like, okay, I I thought I was going to be a hedge fund manager, but now something else was calling you, something else was pulling you forward. And 
I want to ask you about that moment, if you can share it with us and how it felt for you like a deeper alignment and how that creative spiritual pull was one and the same. So it started with just the discomfort, right? Um, <laughs> where I'm out there looking to raise money for the hedge fund and I raised uh, some capital. But as I'm talking to investors, I'm not feeling it. There's something and, you know, that's not a line. And back then, I did not have this framework to, to fall back to, but just it didn't feel right. Something wasn't right. And and that was what prevented me from following that path and started writing instead to just uncover whatever it is that I'm experiencing, feeling, going through. And so it was a very gradual process um, where now it's increased in intensity, but initially it was very gradual. And then, so when you said no to a particular plan, um, I'm reminded of you know a quote that keeps coming up in my life by Joseph Campbell that you must be willing to let, let go of the life you've planned so as to have the life that is waiting for you. <laughs> so it's reminding myself of that. Okay, you know, uh, I'm a poor predictor of my own behavior. All my five-year plans have not worked out, <laughs> and yet it's you know been a grateful journey. And so realizing that's the case, but also at the same time, Breen, realizing that I don't know what's best for me. Mm. God knows best. Mm. You know, um, it says in the Quran, for example, you may want something that is actually bad for you, but you may not want something that is actually good for you and God knows best. Mm -hmm. And there have been so many times, whether it's a heartbreak, whether it's a business, you know, mess up, whether it's something that goes wrong that you're like, I can't believe I'm going through this. But then later on, you're like, oh, now I know why that happened. Like everything happens for a reason, even though we do not understand at the time. And so, so understanding that I don't know what's best, let's lean into the uncertainty um, and trust that it'll work out. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm doing my bit of worship, you know, that is my job, actually. It's not to be a hedge fund manager. It's not to be a writer. It's not to be a lawyer. It's nothing. My job is to actually worship. If I do that, trust that everything else will take care of itself. And, and going from this extreme planner to now, you know, internalizing Rumi's words, who said, as you step, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears. So now it's about every step, you know, I can only look as far out as the next week. That's right. And there's something in what you just said that I want to touch upon, which is true for my own experience. When you said the word worship, I mean, what came to my mind was um, this idea of self-emptying. You know, it's like this pouring out of the essence of oneself in love and gratitude. And you write in your book, you say, make something of your life, not for yourself, but for everyone else. So we make something of our lives, not for ourselves, but for everyone else. And this connects for me, this relationship between how you describe worship and how I experience it, which is self-emptying. But it's also for me, the creative impetus. It's almost like the idea, which is very popular in a lot of spiritual writing of like, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. <laughs> if you want to live, you have to die. <laughs> um, and you, you write, you say, it is what we give that counts. And I want to connect this idea with another one of your reflections, which actually comes right after, about having the courage to stop living other people's lives. And as I sit here, very much in the season of unknowing with this podcast, and I do music, and I'm doing all these crazy things— a lot of people kind of look at this, you know, creative hurricane and they're like, why don't you just pick one thing? Why don't you just do one of these things? And I suppose it comes back for me with what you said about it's what we give that counts. Because 
there is so much that I want to give, and there's so many different expressions for that, right? And I find I'm actually in my healthiest alignment as a human being, spiritually and in an embodied way, when all of these different things are humming. Because it's almost like having those many expressions allows me to be single-hearted and not identified with one too much. Like you even just said, my job is not to be a writer, right? So I want to ask you, um, do you believe that this idea of make something of yourself for others, um, the ways in which we have interpreted that in our society as needing to be a singular vocational identity, like my name is Jawad, I am a writer, or I am Brie, I'm a musician podcaster, is that part of why we suffer so much is because we're attaching all this pressure on these vocational expressions like if we were to practice like I am a many, I am a chord expressing itself over time or unfolding in melody, I wonder if we would feel so threatened or lost when life redirects us on a different path. So what are your thoughts on that kind of vocational pressure? I agree with that. I think the, when your ego is tied to a particular identity that is of this world, your sense of being will be volatile based on how that thing is doing. Mm. And so I think it's more important to um, have it centered in something that is, you know, everlasting. And so for me, that was one of the greatest liberations was to not identify myself as a, you know, hedge fund persona, mm. to let go of that ego identity battle uh, of what am I and not be, not feel uncomfortable in gatherings, uh, you know? And so, for me, I feel like faith is my center mm. now, right? So that for me is my identity, is, is my faith. And, you know, Prophet Muhammad, for example, says, all is well with the faithful, whatever the circumstance. And so if something is not well, I'm lacking in faith. And that's a check for me to, to do more work, mm. as, is, as I would say, right? And I think the other aspect of what you said is transforming myself through to just become a vessel as opposed to I'm going to change the world in this way or I'm going to have this impact. Frankly, I don't know what is intended of me, what I'm meant to be doing. All I can do is to be the best version of me that I can. Mm -hmm. And the only way I know that is to keep purifying my heart, mm -hmm. is to go deeper and deeper in faith and allow the divine to pass through me in whatever way, shape, he would like to manifest right so it's not even holding myself to account that this is what i this is the impact i want to have on the world i don't know yeah. um and i wouldn't even go there as to wonder like, what am i going to do it's simply not thinking big <laughs> it's actually just thinking very small to all of life is worship the, the observation of daily life is the greatest spiritual practice you know i love this idea of sacred monotony where every single day is exactly the same and, and there's devotion in it. Sacred monotony. You know, and just and just keep chiseling away at yourself and, and allowing for things to happen in that manner. And that's, again, that can be confusing because it may, may seem like you're becoming very passive. Mm. And I would argue you're not. Because when you go deeper in faith, deeper in your belief, if you're a lawyer, you'll be a better lawyer. If you're a writer, you'll be a better writer. If you're a musician, you'll be a better musician. If you're an actor, you'll be a better actor. If you or a teacher, you'll be a better teacher hmm. because you're not doing it for yourself anymore. You've got a higher purpose. 
you know, and when you're directed with that energy, I think it changes things. It changes people. It changes you. Um, it's beautiful. It's so profound to listen to you describe that inner freedom of faith, because if the premise is true that we have to die to life to live, you know, that we have to lose our lives to actually find them, it really is only when we let go of our expectations or our ideas that something larger can come in. It's like, this seems like such a simple principle, and yet it's one of the most difficult ones for us to relax into because not knowing is scary or being in the midst of uncertainty is difficult. So we panic and we try to plan and we, our knuckles go white as we try to grip, you know, reality with a new map. Um, in one of your reflections, you write about these three core principles that you say, you know, if life is a great performance, then here's how we should go about it. You say, be in the moment, don't pretend, embrace uncertainty. And I really, I loved the simplicity of these. And I wondered if you could explain or dive in a little deeper about how, how is unknowing necessary to each of those, Jawad? Like, what do we need to unknow to be present? What do we need to unknow to not pretend? What do we need to unknow to embrace uncertainty? <laughs> I think the first thing is to just know that you're not in control. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? What? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's just to surrender. Yeah. There's this great paradox, right, where there's freedom in surrendering. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's, again, like I go back to my own life and how this old version of me was just me doing, doing, doing. And I was very goals oriented. And anything that would get me closer to the goal would make me happy. Anything that would take me away from the goal would make me sad. If I'd fall down, I'd pick myself up, dust off, keep going. To now realizing, actually, I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not living goals-oriented anymore. I'm living more values-oriented. Instead of looking at the future all the time, I'm looking at the present. You know, so in the when you say be in the moment, you know, again, you know, Prophet Muhammad said about how when you wake up in the morning, don't expect to see the evening. When you go to bed at night, don't expect to see the morning. And that is a very intense, intentional way of living, and that creates magic, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. When you have that thought, center of mind, every conversation matters. Every step matters. And I think that's where um, the conviction, the belief deepens further and further. And you're okay with knowing that I don't know what's best. I'm surrendered and trusting the path, right? As you start to walk in the way, the way appears. And I think what we struggle with, especially when we are working with our minds more than our heart, is the, the, the surrender aspect. Oof. It's very difficult for people to surrender. And um, sometimes you're forced by circumstances. Like, you know, you could be in a job that you want to quit, but you're not quitting and then something will happen and all of a sudden you're forced to confront that decision and you're, you've been fired. Mm -hmm. Or it's a relationship that you know you should be ending, but you're not and then something happens and it ends, right? So things happen which are always um, there for us to find meaning. And so for me, I feel all of it is just a love story. Even the unknown is a love story. And the love story is between God and us, right? And the way we find meaning is, are we drawing nearer to him or further apart? Mm -hmm. Like he could give someone money and send him away from him, or he could make someone poor and bring him closer. Mm -hmm. He could give someone a child and send him away with that parent just worships the child, forgets where that blessing came from. Or he could take someone's child 
and bring that person closer. What is good? What's bad? What's evil? What's reward? What's punishment? I don't know. You know, um, praise, dispraise, health, sickness, wealth, poverty, like all of these things lose meaning when you're thinking about it all coming from the divine. And if you are in this relationship where you're driven by developing, cultivating a sound heart attached to God and drawing nearer, then I think that's that's success. It's really stunning because I think one of the working definitions that I've been reframing for myself and what success means for me is a little bit of what we just touched upon on that, you know, giving it all away, that self-emptying place of creativity for me is a state of being in flow. And I consider the divine heart to be one of creativity, of constant creativity and love as expressed in creativity. And so being in that state of flow requires these pieces that you're naming of like being present and not being in my mind or pretending or, you know, not resisting, not resisting what is. And I really, I really appreciated and swore a lot as I read your parts about a resistance because I felt, I felt like I was being called out. Like everything you wrote about resistance, I was like, yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of feel that one. I feel that one deeply. Like I definitely feel resistance. Um, in one of your reflections, Jawad, you say, shouldn't what you love make it feel easy <laughs> in this realization that our truest calling is often where we initially feel resistance. And you say that you write to learn. And elsewhere, you write about resistance in a way that really landed for me. I actually want to read some of it for our listeners, and you get to hear some of your own work read back to you. First, procrastination is the most common manifestation of resistance. We don't tell ourselves, I'm never going to start my own business. Instead, we say, I'm just going to start it tomorrow. Second, rationalization is resistance's right-hand man. Its job is to keep us from feeling the shame we wouldn't feel if we truly faced what cowards we are for not doing our work. Resistance gets a big kick out of that. Third, resistance is experienced as fear. The more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Fear can never be overcome. So being paralyzed with fear is a good indicator. It shows us what we have to do. Fourth, self-doubt can be an ally. This is because it serves as an indicator of aspiration. If we find ourselves asking, am I really a writer? Am I really an artist? Chances are good that we are. The counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. The real one is scared to death. And that line, that last line, really got me and helped me to recognize that you know, these places in us that are full of resistance to this deeper calling are actually the places that are most longing to be set free. And I was thinking about this in terms of relationship, Jawad, like how in marriage or relationship, love mirrors back to us, our most wounded places, our insecurities and our small stories. And I'm wondering, do you consider the relationship to our vocation, to our creativity as fulfilling that same function? I do. I think there's a saying where a believer is a mirror of another believer, mm -hmm. right? So that touches on your point about relationship, like we mirror each other. And I think um, even at work, 
like what you read, you know, that's wisdom from Stephen Pressfield in, in his book, The War of Art, which when I read it, I had the exact same reaction as you just now. And it was actually pivotal in my career because it made me take writing as a craft seriously, you know, turning pro. And it made me confront my day in a way that was that I wasn't taking seriously mm -hmm. before. You know, I was struggling with the whole maker versus manager uh, mindset and I um, needed to carve out time and build guardrails, you know. And it comes back to another quote that I love from another writer, Annie Dillard, how you spend your days, how you spend your life. And so coming back to the, the presence, right, of how you're going to spend each day and that's all that matters. And um, the resistance shows up every single day. And it's not just in terms of, you know, um, I don't feel like writing today, but it shows up in all different ways as well, right? I mean, the, the concept in Jewish tradition or in the Islamic tradition that I refer in the book is, is nafs, right? Which is always inspiring us to, to do things that are not in our favor. So one way to, you know, strengthen yourself spiritually is to keep fighting that nafs. That's the jihad, the inner jihad that, you know, made Rumi who Rumi is. You know, that's what is sort of um, so important to dethrone the ego, as they say in the Buddhist tradition. So, so, the, so the vocation can certainly be an element whereby we experience this and overcome it. Yeah. And we were speaking before I pressed record candidly about, the experience I'm having currently in this venture, this wild experiment of doing this podcast, this show, and being a musician at the same time, and realizing that, by the way, it hasn't even been a full year since I did this. Well, it's been just, yeah, it's been a full year since I left the job that I had, but I think I didn't really launch the podcast until the end of last summer. But here I am, and I am just like, you know, struggling to get by, and it's so hard. And all the stories that are coming up for me are around this, like, oh, it's just not working out. And I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills and the stress like mounts and mounts. And I was sharing with you that I had this profound realization that in this moment, what this discomfort is teaching me is that I have quite a story about money and I have quite a fear around need you know, that if I need support or if I have to ask for support, that somehow I'm weak. And as I was sharing that with you, I was struck by the power of, of that recognition and thinking about the fact that, Joad, I'm not sure any other circumstance in life could bring me to that, to that place of where that wound was stored inside me, where that story was. So in many ways, I think I asked you that question because it's certainly feeling true for my own life that this vocational creative endeavor is actually revealing something that needed to be set free. And I can't help but wonder like how much more free I'm going to be to actually let go of that story, to actually trust that, you know, that there's nothing weak about being vulnerable or asking for support, you know? It is difficult, you know, and I and I feel what you're saying very, very much. And you know what's helped me because I've been through those moments too, and I still am to an extent, you know, I struggle with asking mm -hmm. um, for even referrals, for example, you know, like these are satisfying clients that I have, but in eight years, I've never once asked for a referral, which is, you know, a, a wonderful organic way to grow. Uh, and I struggle with that. And I think 
you know, something that I've been thinking about lately is that I actually enjoy being sold products <laughs> by Apple or Patagonia or name your brand. You enjoy it, you know, like you, you, you actually can see an advertisement and like it mm. for the creativity and the utility you'll get out of consuming the product. Yet when it comes to what we do and trying to market that or, you know, ask um, to support that, we shy away. And, you know, something that I've been struggling with um, is that self-doubt part, which can at an, at an extreme become self-sabotage. And one thing that's helping me um, with that lately touches into something you said earlier, which is that whenever I experience self-doubt now, I realize I'm experiencing that because I'm still identifying with the self, mm-hmm. you know, and I need to let go of that self. And, you know, the poet Alama Iqbal says, lose yourself and run to God, strengthened by God, return to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think, so whenever I find myself in moments of self-doubt or where I can't make the ask, I remind myself that, you know, I got to lose that self. That's what's, you know, creating these feelings of being vulnerable or the ego that prevents you from asking or, or doing what's right in that moment. And, and it's so important because I think it, it is, to your point, helps in spiritual development, emotional development, and just, you know, being able to do things that are right for you and, and what you do. Yeah, yeah. The ways in which we get in the way are really spectacular, right? Like, I mean, it's like we we invent some pretty powerful stories and like situations and circumstances to get in our own way, <laughs> to just, to sab- like you said, self-sabotage or self-attack or um, belittle the opportunity or limit or block the flow, limit the flow of love from being a reciprocal web-like unfolding uh, structure of of what reality actually is, you know? You write about this, and I think it's powerful to think about this in connection to what we're just talking about. You write about combining relaxation with activity because I want to make this like super practical for listeners to be like, okay, so when, when you catch yourself in that self-doubt spiral, just like I do all the time, and I'm like, I can't ask that person for help, like, ugh. So when you catch yourself in that space... Um, I want to ask how we can apply practices, spiritual practices in a practical way. And letting go or releasing the ego is is not an easy task. But I have found that by connecting with the body, I'm able to connect better with the present moment. Actually connecting with sensation and breath and slowing down and being here allows me to create that spaciousness between my deeper personhood and the self that wants to attack. And so, you know, I meditate. I know you pray devoutly, but I was recently doing this exercise with a friend where I was like trying to describe what the trust state feels like in the body. And she was like, well, like how, like, what is it like? And so I said, I was like, okay, it's kind of like three things for me. I was like, well, my belly is soft. So like I'm breathing deeply. Um, It's like a giggle and it's kind of like, you shrug and you're smiling. You're kind of like, it's okay, you know? And it was those three things. It was like the soft belly, the giggle, and the shrug with the smile. That's kind of how the trust state feels like to me. So I want to ask you that question. What does the trust state feel like for you or the flow state feel like? And can you describe it in that sort of playful, embodied way? If 
for me, it's the same as uh, I shared earlier, which is that centeredness yeah. of heart, mind, and tongue. You know, that that is the the constancy with which I'm sort of operating in every interaction, uh, every single day. And if I'm operating with that consistency, I feel like, you know, uh, that is that trusted moment for me, you know, uh, place for me. It's, it is. So it's a feeling of alignment, like alignment. Alignment in your body is how it feels. Okay. Yeah, like it's like this vertical centeredness okay. between the heart, the mind, and the tongue, um, for sure. Which I feel that is when I have the most clarity mm. in my decision making. You know, and if I'm slowing down, doing something or whatever, it's because there's that disconnect. Mm. You know, um, but I also feel what helps in in moments where you need to make an ask and you're being troubled is also realizing that I'm not asking for myself. Mm. You know, um, there are two aspects to that. One is because you really believe in what you're doing, such that you can deliver that value to the other person. Mm through your work or where I where I lean on more is that I'm not asking for myself you know it's the the, the purpose is much more divine for me so it's not Sir reflections or my business like you know if tomorrow Sir reflections goes down to zero and everybody stops reading my writing that may hurt but that's my ego's not attached to it mm. you know it's still my faith and you know uh my relationship with God. And so that happens where I'm not asking for myself. Like, you know, a, a practical example is, you know, I, I used I used my daughter. <laughs> it sounds so weird, but what I mean to say is I was making it a quick trip to New York to see a client who I really admire and he's been very helpful and supportive in my business. And I was now toying with this new level of service, mm. which would require him to pay 5x more than what he's currently paying, which is quite a steep amount. And I was really shying and avoiding the conversation and not sure how should I do it. And, you know, speaking to my coach and like, she's giving me tips about, you know, how I should do it. But none of that really worked. But I still booked my ticket and decided I'm going to go. What worked, Brie? When I was, as I was leaving for the airport, my eldest daughter, Zenab started crying, 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 don't go, hysterically. And I was like, you know what, fuck. If I'm going to New York because I've made Zenob cry this much, there's no bloody way I'm coming back without making that <laughs> Yes, you So do. when I was having that breakfast, <laughs> so when I was having that breakfast with this, with this wonderful person, um, as uncomfortable as I was feeling, I was thinking about oh. Zenob, you know? So whether it's thinking about your boys, thinking about God, whatever it is, but I think... You know, you can lose yourself also by thinking about other people. Oh, that's point. so profound because that is also how I find myself. Um, I find my way out of my shame spiral or self-attack spiral when I touch back into that self-emptying principle of creativity, which is what I create becomes alive only in the hands of or in the ears of the people listening to it. So whether it's music or, you know, my paintings or the podcast, it's sort of like it only becomes real in the giving of it away, in the giving away, it becomes manifest, which is exactly what we've been talking about in terms of it's only in the dying that we actually live. It's only in the letting go that something becomes, you know, uh, becomes manifested. I guess I could say that. 
So it's a helpful vision because I do think we we have this false notion of the separate self. We keep thinking of ourselves as individuals when everything around us is demonstrating how wrong that is, that we are interconnected, that we are one, that, that we're all in this together. And so I think that is a very useful tip that we can use to substitute the whole whenever we're making an ask or whenever we're feeling that spiral to be like, okay, that net is there. I am connected to that web, that, that root system. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to ask you, I think somewhere in your, one of your reflections, you had a, a Rumi quote that I hadn't read before. And I think actually it was in your reflection about Kendrick Lamar. And you quote Rumi saying, let yourself be silently drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. <laughs> and I loved it so much. I wrote it down because I find that as we've been dancing around in this conversation, it sometimes takes us getting lost first to learn what that stronger pull feels like. Like the, <laughs> like the instinct to listen to that inner compass has just been so hijacked by other people's expectations. And you were sharing this about how you made that leap from being a hedge fund manager and into your own writing. But I guess I'm curious, like what is the silent strong pull of what you really love in your own life these days? How is that showing up in you even now. So it's like, it's easy for us to create the story of like, well, Jawad, now you're, now you're a successful writer. You're doing it. You're doing the thing. But where is the pull of love leading you creatively? I know spiritually it's toward that deep connection with God, but creatively, how do you hold that pull, not as a goal, but as an intention? And I guess I'm trying to get at how do we substitute the goal-oriented life for the value one while still being creatives and makers? I think the question that I come to is how can I be of service to the community mm -hmm. that I've been lucky enough to be a part of and sort of cheer. And so there's one element of, you know, whereby it's, you know, what Anatole France said, you know, if the path be beautiful, let us not ask where it leads. So there is, you know, a big part of me that really rests in those words where I don't know where we're going, but the path is beautiful. And so it's just about taking every incremental step that makes sense and how can be of service to the community. And, you know, what started off as just pure writing has morphed over the last couple of years into podcast as well. So like experimenting with the audio form mm -hmm. to you know, Zoom sessions with community members. And I remember when, when, when the pandemic hit in the first few months, I would struggle to put the camera on on Zoom. I was like so shy. <laughs> I'm like, get it together, Jawad. Like, if you want to make this a real thing, then you got to really show up. And, and those, you know, monthly online events have turned into something that's really um, wonderful as a way that's transformed share reflections from being just an investment community to a learning community. And now that sort of we reached like sort of the end of the pandemic in a way. Uh, I'm excited about events again, and, and we're doing uh, in-person dinners, uh, which I'm excited about. And I think a question that I had in mind was like, what's, what would be our event strategy for 2022? And I realized, you know, um, it's going to be more intimate. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm more interested in is in our deep, meaningful conversations in an intimate setting. So how can I create that? Um, how can I have conversations that are beyond just markets and figuring out what's happening in the world? 
which is important, but also how can we all be better versions of ourselves? So I find my mind, um, my interest moving towards content that is not investment related as much. That is what I do. And that's what people pay to, you know, uh, for our research, that's what they pay for. And so that's always going to be a focus. But in terms of where can I provide more value, I feel like it's in these other realms, whether it's parenting, whether it's relationships, whether it's, um, you know, limiting beliefs or, you know, um, other teachers like Baron Katie or whatever, like, you know, just trying to think of other disciplines that we can introduce to the community. So I find myself moving that direction. I can't see it clearly yet, but that's what I'm being pulled towards for sure. Mm. What I hear you saying too in the description of what's calling you these days, Jawad, is that, and you've been saying this all along, that if we're present to this moment, to see this moment and ourselves as enough, as satiated in this moment with having what we need, and that if we create from this place, that then we're able to express our values with intention in moving things forward in our plans and in our lives without being so goal-driven, goal-oriented, or success, quotation marks, success-oriented. Um, and this reminds me of a conversation that we once had over dinner with friends where you challenged those of us who were sitting by you to describe our essence's resting state. Do you remember this? And you kind of set a challenge for that. And I wondered if you could retell that challenge and how that's an invitation for us to just be present and aware. Yeah, I think everybody has what I would call a default state. You know, that's basically the, the mental, emotional equilibrium where you generally find yourself in. You know, you could have volatility spikes up and down, but you'd eventually, you know, come back to that median. And I think it's interesting to just sit and think about what that is for yourself. And it was an interesting exercise for the group uh, to hear the different perspectives, you know. Um, I still remember yours, <laughs> um, which I'd love for you to share with your audience. Yeah. Um, I said mine was contentment. Right, which is so true. And this is part of what made me think of that story is because you do radiate that sense of like deep rootedness and contentment that is so much a part of the gift of your personhood that even those of us who are in your presence touch in on it too. It's like all that panic and anxiety starts to melt away and it's just like, oh, okay. All right, stoner, things are not that bad. <laughs> you, you might be about to be broke, but it's okay. <laughs> You'll live. <laughs> but mine was, I think when, when I was reflecting on it, was like, oh, my, I think my default state is wonder. It's just this, you know, when I'm really present, I can't help but be deeply in love with everything that's around me and sort of thunderstruck by it, really. I find that beauty is the portal through which I most often experience God. And maybe that's why I'm so attracted to creativity and creative endeavors is because beauty, not just expressed as an aesthetic value, but as the thread that runs through everything, the things that most move us in this life, um, which are everywhere. It can be a piece of trash. It can be, you know, the way that a breeze hits a particular tree in a moment or, you know, I was just recently stuck in an airport for five hours 
on a long layover, which seriously, long layovers are just not worth it. I don't know why I keep buying the cheap ticket with the long layover. It's just don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. But I was trying to make a practice because I was losing my mind sitting there in midway. And I was making a practice to like listen for how people laugh and like the timbre and texture of people's laughter. And I don't know, it, it, it took my breath away. Like when I really started listening for it, it felt like I was like listening for chimes or, you know, you, it's like, it's not that hard for us to realize that the cathedral of the present moment is always there. It's just whether or not we're humble enough to kneel at it, you know? So. I think what's beautiful about what you're saying, Brie, is that life and creativity can become a devotional act. Yeah. So it's taking one step further from just intention to actually devotion. It's actually a word that I miss in our language. We don't talk about that. You know, we don't use the word devotion anymore. Agreed. It could be devoted to a husband, a devoted to a calling, devotion to God. But, you know, I, I feel lucky that I've found something that I can do for the rest of my life. I'm devoted to this craft. Whatever it, shape it takes, I don't know. But... When I was feeling very anxious in my journey at one point, my mentor said to me, Jawad, relax. You're doing the one thing that you'll probably do for the rest of your life. You have plenty of time to figure it out. Hmm. And when you take that longitudinal, devotional commitment approach to your work, and I feel um, that intention, you're blessed, I think, with the divine to support you in your efforts. Hmm. That is such a moving perspective, not only for um, myself, but for all of us who are listening to, you know, if we can find that centered place where we're not lying, like you said, where our hearts and our tongue and our minds become one, whatever it is that we can vocationally do from that place is, is a lifelong story. It's a lifelong song of devotion. And we can trust the changing chord progressions, even when they go minor, <laughs> even when they take a dark turn, <laughs> you know, it's like, it just becomes part of the beautiful, you know, melodic unfolding of this, this love song of our lives. And I'm very, very grateful to you, Jawad, for bringing, bringing me into this, this place of presence. As you know, I'm, I'm really in it right now. So I, I feel like I just received some, some powerful teaching so thank you. Thanks for being on the show and spending some time with me. I have a favor to ask now in closing, which is I'm wondering if you would read from your book. And I had to giggle because you already quoted directly the quote that I that's in this in this passage, but it's the passage on letting go from 228 to 229, starting with letting go is incredibly difficult, all the way down to the Joseph Campbell quote. And that will be our closing for this episode. Letting go is incredibly difficult and is not the same as giving up. Letting go does not mean you stop caring either. It just means we cease our attempts to own and control the environment we're living in. Reaching greater clarity comes not by finding the answers, but by undoing the basis of the problem, Dr. Hawkins writes. The basic idea is that when we are in a surrendered state, we are free of inner conflict and expectations. We let go of the attachment to our current experience of life and have no strong emotion about a thing. It's okay if it happens, and it's okay if it doesn't. We develop an inner security, knowing that there will always be sufficient abundance. For me, that comes from my faith. Dr. Hawkins also states, quote, when we are free, 
there is a letting go of attachments. We can enjoy a thing, but we don't need it for our happiness. Then money becomes merely a tool to achieve our goals in the world. In this state of acceptance, there is the feeling that nothing needs to be changed. Everything is perfect and beautiful the way it is. There's a decreased preoccupation with doing and a growing focus on being, which allows us to experience the basic nature of the universe, which it will be discovered is to manifest the greatest good possible in a situation." End quote. This is why letting go has frequently been called getting present. In the process of letting go, we are no longer emotionally or psychologically invested in a thing, an idea, a goal, a position. As we learn to examine the feelings and ask from where they come, we can then let go of them. Thus, we regain our freedom, which also means we can be more present. And perhaps we'll then notice the trees in the winter, how they're experts at letting things go. To quote my friend, Adam Robinson, each day presents us with 86,400 seconds which means each day presents us with virtually countless opportunities to reset, recover our balance, and continue rehearsing our best selves. This is the reality of it. And as it struck me a few years ago, my life has never been the same since. Jawad, thank you so much for being such a source of equanimity in the world with your heart that is so deeply attuned to the divine and your brilliant mind, and a tongue that can speak all these things into reality and help the rest of us see it too. I'm so grateful for your friendship, and I'm especially thankful that you came on the show today. Bree, it's been an absolute joy knowing you and sharing our experiences together, and I'm eternally grateful for spending this time with you. So... We're trying to learn how to not separate our intentions from where we're trying to go. <laughs> we're trying to learn how to be more unified in heart, mind, and spirit as we walk and trust our own unfolding stories in the midst of becoming. So here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. I loved Jawad's invitation for us to stop lying. There's a Gospel of Thomas passage in which Jesus is quoted as saying, stop lying, don't do what you hate, because everything here is revealed before heaven. I really love the simplicity of that because it's like, <laughs> what do you want? What, what are you aligning yourself with? What agreement are you making with the choices of your life? And then to get clear about the contents of our heart is to bring ourselves in alignment with the heart so that we are hopefully, as Jawad is, speaking from, thinking of, and moving in a direction that is full of integrity. Second piece of True North Wisdom, I kind of died a little bit when Jawad quoted Rumi saying, as you start to walk in the way, the way appears. I mean, Talk about a tagline for unknowing. <laughs> to me, this was everything because it is the act of faith defined as the courage to move forward into the unknown. That's it. It's that simple. The willingness that we have to say, I don't know what's going to happen next, which we never do, and move forward anyway. Take that next step. Not the one that's 10 steps in front of you, as the poet David White says, but the one that's right here. The first step the step that's hardest to make. And it's the hardest to make because it's the one that requires us to believe. 
Third piece of True North wisdom, Jawad followed that quote by saying, If something is not well, I'm lacking in faith. So look, maybe your faith, like mine, has gone through a metamorphosis. <laughs> it's not the same. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same terminology that it once did. But the principle of faith still remains, which is do we have the courage to believe that there's something greater than ourselves? Whether that something greater is just a deep, abiding, attention-filled awareness of our environment, this beautiful planet that we live in, or the universe, or if you want to call it your higher self, or maybe you still believe in a form of God or divinity, whatever it is, the humility that can move in the belief that there is something greater than ourselves, <laughs> that we aren't the smartest beings in the multiverse, <laughs> God, I hope not, that is a humility that is beautiful to me. It inspires courage. It inspires me to create. It makes me want to be the kind of person that just pours everything out with every fiber of my being, that gives this life every shot, every chance. I want to live with that kind of wild, wilding courage. So if you are a fellow SBNR like me, spiritual but not religious, <laughs> maybe we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not hijack our own desire to believe in the more because that belief activates courage and creativity. Just because we don't align with or want to align with institutional religion anymore doesn't mean that we have to cut out the heart that trusts, the heart that has courage, or the heart that wants to give itself over to belonging and participating in something that's bigger than us. There's a difference between the contents of faith and the containers that housed certain versions of faith. Let's be wise in discerning the difference. And as Jawad said, if something is not well in your life, maybe you're lacking in faith. And maybe that faith isn't just about faith in the divine, but faith in yourself, faith that you're not in this alone. Jawad is the kind of friend that reminds me of this regularly, and I'm so grateful. So I hope that you'll feel the invitation to be reminded, to remember, to be membered to this truth in your own life. That's it for today's episode. If you would like to be membered with me to a larger membership of participation and belonging in this unknowing adventure, I want to invite you to become a member of the unknowing community. You can do so in two ways, by becoming a patron or by giving a tax-deductible donation to unknowing. Both are listed and linked in the show description below. And finally, you know I like to close out each episode with a quote. This season's quote is by Rebecca Solnit. Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go. <laughs> <laughs>